Last week, I told the story of a trip that I took to Portland with a group of middle school students, and we were in downtown Portland at Pioneer Square sharing our faith with people. And at the end of that time, I, I, I told the story about uh, approaching or having a conversation with a man, and uh, one of our young gals and her dad were in this intense conversation with him. I got pulled over into the conversation, and and in the course of the conversation, found out that this guy thought he was Jesus Christ. And um, some other things that, that wasn't the thing that stuck with me the most. It was something else that he actually said to me during that that I want to share with you this morning. Um, in that conversation, he told, he told us something big is going to take place. And it's going to take place soon. It's going to happen. It's going to be cataclysmic. You can't miss it. And when it happens, he said, you're going to know that I'm telling the truth. And it was, it was vague enough to be like a fortune cookie, you know, where it's like something big is going to happen. Okay, well, yeah, I could say that too. And something big is going to happen probably, you know, there'll be an earthquake or a war somewhere. And, you know, Jesus warned of those kind of things, but it just kind of stuck in my mind. Well, here's the interesting part. Two months later was September of 2001 and terrorists hijacked four airplanes Flew two of them into the Twin Towers in New York City. Flew one of them into the Pentagon and one crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. So when that happens, guess what I was thinking? Oh my goodness, was this guy right? Is that what he was talking about? How, how, would, I, how would I discern? But it, it was unsettling enough to me to, to kind of think about it. Was, did he know what he was talking about or, or did he just make a guess? Was it just kind of a wild, okay, anything could meet this. Did he really know? Was he, was he a prophet? Was he speaking prophecy or was it just coincidence or was it something else? Maybe something even more sinister. Well, about four years later, uh, my family and I moved up to Washington State where I worked with a group of church plants uh, in the Seattle area. And Carrie and I, at that time, we bought a little house in a town named Sumner, which is about 30 miles south of Seattle and about 10 or 12 miles east of Tacoma. And early in our time there, I was at this church building where uh, many of the staff of this project worked and um, was getting ready for a meeting, and one of the gals, an older gal who worked at this church plant with this organization, sat down with me, and, and we were talking, and she asked me, she said, Mike, can I just share something with you that I believe that God has, has told me? And she began to tell me of this story when the year or two a year or two before, she had been in Sumner, this little town where we bought a house, and she had been prayer walking through the town. She had been just kind of praying for the city. And, and she told me that God had given her a vision while she was doing this prayer walk. And, and the vision was of this man who was holding a sword. She couldn't tell who it was. She couldn't see the face or anything, but she, she had this particular vision. And in that, she believed that God was telling her that he was raising up someone to, to basically fight for the gospel in this little town and, and to bring the gospel to bear powerfully in the town of Sumner. And now that my family and I had landed in this town, she believed that this vision referred to me. And so she wanted to encourage me to be that person with the sword and to, to, to be strong, to be courageous, to take heart, to follow God's lead and boldly do the work that he called me to do in this little town. Well, about two and a half years later, we sold our house there and moved back to Prineville. 
because we thought God was leading us in this direction. And we've been here ever since. So was she, was she wrong? Was she, uh, did she not have a vision or did she have a vision? Did, did she misinterpret the vision or misapply it? Maybe it was actually somebody else and she thought it had to do with me. Or the deeper question for me is, did I disobey what God had shown her or disregard what God had shown her? Now, I, tell, I give you these illustrations, tell you these stories, uh, because I think there's a, there's, we have these experiences sometimes, and some of you may have had those experiences where we feel like God has given you something for someone else or something very clear and very visual. And the question is, how do we understand these kind of things? How do, how do, I, how do I discern these different kinds of conversations where, where God may or may not be speaking? How does God speak or how does God not speak to us Today, How do we understand and apply a text like this from, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 19, where it says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And last week we looked at the first Five words, do not quench the spirit. And, and today we're really looking at the rest of it. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And so what I want to do, just to kind of begin this conversation, is I want to frame the conversation kind of historically and theologically. So if you like history, if you like theology, this is the place where you pay attention. Um, and, and over time, believers have broadly fallen into two camps in regards to things such as prophecy or speaking in tongues or miracles or healing. Oftentimes, these are called the more charismatic or maybe you've heard them called miraculous gifts or even sign gifts or something like that. Today, we're only really focusing on prophecy because that's where our text takes us, but I think we have to have a broader conversation to understand um, kind of how people have, have, have approached this over time and then also to see what the scriptures actually say about it. The first um, I want to call it the, the first side of this debate or the first side of the conversation is a belief called cessationism. Cessationism comes from the word to cease, to, to, to stop, to desist, right? To finish something, to end. And so cessationism is the gift that, or, or the view that gifts like prophecy have ceased to function, have stopped, don't, don't happen in the church anymore after the death of the apostles or roughly at the end of the first century. So, so things like prophecy and tongues and those kind of things don't actually, haven't actually occurred since the first century. And cessationists believe that signs and wonders, including miraculous sign gifts, were confined to the apostolic age when the, when the, when the apostles walked the earth, when they, when they were spreading the gospel, that these signs and wonders acted to verify their message. Okay, so signs and wonders had this kind of authenticating role as the gospel was being newly shared throughout the Roman Empire. And so you look at Acts and we see something very much like this in Acts chapter 14, verse 3 where it says, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. 
So, so in other words, God was, was verifying their message. He was authenticating their message by the presence of signs and wonders and miracles and, and healings and different things being done. Basically, said, these are, basically saying, these are my people, this is my message, listen. And many people would, came to faith through the, through the witness and the, and the work of the apostles and the church in these times. Now, what this argument does is it points to distinct epics within even, even the scripture where there were a concentration of miracles. Like think back to Moses, right? Here Moses was bringing a new revelation, the law, to Israel. He goes into Egypt and all these miracles happen, right? Ten plagues. And then they're in the wilderness and all these miracles happen through Moses. You fast forward to, uh, to the time of the kings and there was Elijah and Elisha. And all these different miracles that were happening as these two prophets uh, were in their ministry. You think of the book of Daniel and the different um, miraculous things that happened there. And then most of all, you think of Jesus, right? In his ministry. And here he is, the Messiah, coming. And he's just doing miracles all over the place. And the Holy Spirit is working through him. And then the same thing happens with his apostles. So, so when a leader or a revelation is established, or after it's been established and grounded, miracles tend to die out. So according to this view... When the New Testament had been written, when it had been completed, these gifts were no longer needed to authenticate the message because the scripture was complete. We had God's revelation. We didn't need any more. And so cessationists tend to hold a high view of the Bible. And they would say God's word is complete. His scripture is complete. His revelation is complete in the authoritative, inerrant word, the written books of these 66 books of the Holy Scriptures. And so in this view, New Testament prophets spoke with an authority that was equal to the apostles or, or even equal to the Old Testament prophets. So Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Okay, so this, the, the foundation of God's authoritative revealed word was the ministry and the word and the writing of the, of the apostles and the words of the prophets. And so now that we have God's word complete, apostles and prophets are no longer needed. Okay, that's cessationism, which is kind of fun to say. Say it five times fast. Cessationism, cessation. I don't think I could do it. The next viewpoint, which is really the other side of the spectrum, and I'm almost done here, don't worry, um, is called continuationism. And you can see where that word comes from. And it's, it's basically this opposite side of the debate that continuationists believe that these charismatic gifts or sign gifts or miraculous gifts continue to be available past the first century and all the way into the modern church. And they argue that, the, that these gifts of prophecy or speaking in tongues or miracles or, or healing are given to all manners of believers throughout the ages not just the first century church. So they would hold that these gifts are still available to the church today. Now, obviously this is a spectrum of beliefs. So um, you may be able to put yourself on the sensationist line or the continuationist line, or you might just think the whole line is silly. Um, but you might be somewhere in between even, or go like, well, I'm, I'm open to that, but I'm not quite sure. And, and hopefully... Where we go now will help to, to bring some clarity to your own mind in this. Um, and in both camps also, there's a wide range of practice and belief as well. So what I wanna do now is really with that in mind, continue by turning to the scriptures to see if we can, we can come to a definition of what prophecy was 
and how it functioned within the first century church, like a church like Thessalonica. So when Paul says, do not despise prophecies, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking uh, about something that we see also in Acts and some of the other books like 1 Corinthians. So last week we looked, um, we began at Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost when God gives the Holy Spirit to his church and Peter stands up and gives this sermon and he points out that the prophet Joel had foreseen this day, had spoken of it, spoken of a time when God would, would give all manner of people his spirit and all manner of people would prophesy, young and old, men and women, slaves and free, that they would all prophesy and this began to be fulfilled, he said, at Pentecost and then it continued throughout these churches in the first century. So a quick survey of the book of Acts. Um, we begin in Acts chapter 11, verse 27, a prophet named Agabus. Let me see if I have this up there. Nope, the wrong thing. Never mind. So here's the, here's the first one. Chapter 11, verse 27. You can write that down. A prophet named Agabus correctly foretells a famine. Okay, he stands up and said, there's going to be a famine coming and we need to be prepared for it. And that happened. A couple of chapters later in Acts chapter 13, verses one through three, the church in Antioch, a number of prophets and teachers, it says, who were present and active in the church at Antioch were, were praying and fasting together and the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Now, we don't know how that actually happened. We know what the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have, but we don't have a lot of other details about how this prophecy actually came. Uh, Acts chapter 15, just after the Jerusalem council, verse 32, gives us some insight into the purpose and the role of prophecy in these churches. So Judas and Silas, it says, are two prophets. And in verse 32 of chapter 15, it says that they encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So, so their, their gift of prophecy or their work of prophecy acted to encourage and strengthen the church. And then in Acts chapter 19, verses five to seven, this is the story where Paul comes to Ephesian, or to Ephesus, and he meets 12 disciples of John the Baptist. And he begins to talk with them and, and realizing that they don't really know who Jesus is and they haven't been baptized, they haven't received the Holy Spirit. So he shares the gospel with them. They put their faith in Christ, he baptizes them, they receive the Holy Spirit, and it says they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. But unfortunately, Nobody tells us what they said. <laughs> you know what that prophecy actually looked like. It just tells us that they prophesied. Now, finally, we get to Acts chapters 20 and 21, which give us perhaps the clearest picture in the book of Acts of how prophecy actually functioned in the life of the church. So if you're asleep, wake up now, because this is important. Here, Paul is traveling. It's the end of his ministry, the end of his third missionary journey. He's traveling back to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's stopping at these different cities and visiting with the disciples, strengthening and encouraging, encouraging the church. Now, he is aware, you'll find out here, he's aware that persecution is coming as he goes back to Jerusalem. He knows it awaits him. But regardless of that, he's intent on going there. So here's what he says here in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 to 23, to the Ephesian elders when he meets with them. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. 
Okay, the, the spirit is making me go. It's like the spirit has me in chains and is drawing me to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit, listen to this, testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, question, how had the Holy Spirit testified to him in every city about what awaited him in Jerusalem. What did that actually look like? And Acts 21 actually helps fill in the picture when he spends a week with the church entire. So Acts chapter uh, 21, verse four. Sorry, I didn't give you the rest of that quote there, but Acts chapter 21, verse four. And through the Spirit, the church, the believers entire, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, this is likely the same kind of thing that was happening in the other churches and the other cities that he had been visiting, that they were through the Spirit telling him not to go on to Jerusalem or sharing with him about what was going to happen. But what does it mean that they were telling him this through the Spirit? Because is, is the Spirit here contradicting himself? Think about it, okay? I'm constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and now these people through the Spirit are telling him not to go to, to Jerusalem. Is the Spirit confused? Or is there something else going on here? And I, and I think the answer is obvious. I think there's something else going on here. And let's see a few verses later if we can gain some clarity on it. When Paul comes to Caesarea in verse eight of Acts chapter 21. It says, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So Philip's four daughters all prophesied and likely they were prophesying, speaking about the persecution and imprisonment which awaited Paul, which is then confirmed in the very next verse when Agabus shows up again. Agabus was the same prophet we met back in Acts chapter 11 who foretold uh, the famine. And he does this kind of Old Testament prophet thing where he does this object lesson and takes Paul's belt and wraps himself up in it and speaks this prophecy. And it's one of the only spoken prophecies we have in the book of Acts. So it's super helpful to actually look at it and go like, okay, what is prophecy? So two interesting observations about this particular prophecy. First, Agabus begins with these words. Thus says the Holy Spirit. Reminds you of an Old Testament prophet, right? Thus says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So we assume when we hear that, that his words have an authoritative strength to them. Much like those of an Isaiah or a Jeremiah or, a, or an Ezekiel, right? However, when we actually look at Agabus's prophecy, what we see is that his prophecy in general is true. It's right, it's spot on. But he gives us two particular details that are distinctly inaccurate. 
So think about that for a second. Here's a prophecy. We have a recorded prophecy. And later on in chapter 21, we find that the, the very particulars of his prophecy don't come true in the manner he said they would. So just a few verses later, the, Jew, the Jews are, are, Paul gets arrested, but the Jews, Agabus says the Jews are gonna bind you. Well, the Jews never bind Paul at all. The Romans bind Paul in verse 33. They're the ones that, that put handcuffs on him. They are the Gentiles. They're the ones binding him. So for some reason, the particulars don't line up there. Furthermore, the Jews never hand Paul over to the Gentiles as Agabus predicted they would. Rather, the Roman soldiers, that's the Gentiles, rescue Paul from a violent and angry Jewish mob who are in the process of tearing him to pieces. And they have to bust in and carry him out. Okay, now you might think, Mike, you're really being nitpicky here. But what do we do with that? What do we do when at the beginning of a chapter we have this prophecy and the end of the chapter, the prophecy for the most part is true, but the details are not. Are we, are we just being nitpicky or is there something to learn here? And, and why, would, why would this narrative so clearly show that? How could believers through the Holy Spirit tell Paul one course of action and that yet Paul be constrained by the Holy Spirit to take the very opposite course of action. Now don't worry, I don't think that scripture is contradicting itself. What it's doing here, I think, is helping us to better understand the character of the New Testament gift of prophecy. And the first thing we have to realize is that, is that the prophetic gifting in the early church in situations like these in these churches was not authoritative or inerrant in the same way in which the, the preaching and the writing of the apostles was inerrant. We can see in these, in these puzzling passages that the spoken words of the prophets can be mixed with human error. So let me use teaching as an analogy, the, the gift of teaching. We can compare these two. So when I teach, my job is to convey the inerrant and authoritative word of God. It's to take the revealed truth of God's word and commune it communicate it to you. So God's revelation is what I'm teaching, but my words are not authoritative per se. They are only authoritative insofar as they accurately interpret and apply God's word from the scriptures. But I'm a fallen human being. And fallen human beings like me make mistakes. We often get things wrong. You shouldn't believe everything I say. You should be like the Bereans from Acts chapter 17 who listened to the word, opened the Bible, and assessed, does this line up with what we know God has said? You should always weigh my words against the Bible. And this is what I believe is happening with these prophets or this gift of prophecy in Acts. So, so in regards to Paul's future, they had received some kind of direct, compelling revelation from the Holy Spirit. Maybe it, was, maybe it was a vision of Paul being bound and held by Roman soldiers. So they, they'd received some sort of picture from God, some sort of word. However, some of them were mistaken in their application as they communicated that revelation to Paul and to others. 
So on the one hand, the Spirit was revealing God's fu- or Paul's future suffering to them. And on the other hand, the Spirit had also given them a deep love for their brother Paul. So here they, here they have a Spirit-given word or revelation, and on the other hand, a Spirit-given love. And, and these two Spirit-driven realities came out not only in prophetic words about his future, but also in personal pleas to him not to hurry toward the danger that they knew was in store for him. So I think what they heard from God is Paul is going to suffer What they inferred from that is Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. So they had, through the Spirit, this vision and they urged him not to go. So the gift of prophecy, therefore, was not in the New Testament in these churches. It wasn't authoritative because prophets are not infallible, just like preachers are not infallible. And God has never said that they or their prophecies are infallible, like the teachings of the apostles that we have in the scriptures are infallible. So let me give you my working, very fallible definition of prophecy that I think these passages help us to understand. I would, I would define it this way, that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament is the imperfect communication of a revelation from the Holy Spirit for the purpose of edifying, encouraging, and building up the church. And and just note this, that that I don't think prophecy always had to do with the future. Sometimes it was just a word of encouragement from God, something that he wanted his people to hear. Now, key to this is the need for testing. So if you're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, As a gift to the church, prophecies deserve, Paul says, the church's attention. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. However, because the gift of prophecy is fallible, that that means human error can creep into it, prophecies require testing. They shouldn't just be accepted, no questions asked. But test everything, verse 21. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Paul gives very similar instructions to the Corinthian church here that, uh, that Joe and Sharon read for us in Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting at verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said, to test what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. So the picture in Corinth was that prophets were to speak the revelation that they received from the Holy Spirit in an orderly fashion. They were to communicate it with humility and then every prophecy spoken was to be weighed or tested by the entire church to discern what was from God and what was from the individual and even what was maybe from another spirit. So 1 John 4, 1 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the Holy Spirit isn't the only spirit trying to speak to and guide us. We must use discernment. We must use testing to find and hold fast to good and then to reject the evil. But what in the world does testing a prophecy look like? What does that 
entail? Let me just give you, I think, four biblical tests here. First, prophecies as they're weighed must line up with the revealed word of God. So like the Bereans of Acts 17, the church must be so familiar with God's word that we easily recognize his voice. We know when something is not true, when something doesn't line up with with the testimony of the rest of scripture. It must line up with God's word. Secondly, the manner of prophecy should be marked with deep humility, with love and with grace. It shouldn't be arrogant or rude, but should be marked by maturity and wisdom and the the fruit of the spirit. Now again, we're all fallen and we don't always uh, use our gifts correctly, but that should be the manner of it. Third, prophecy should build up, encourage, and strengthen the church. That's the purpose we see of prophecies, that the church be strengthened. They should be practiced in a community. All, all gifts should be practiced in a community of believers who know each other, who love each other, who hold one another accountable. And they don't always have to do with the future. Oftentimes it's just a word of encouragement or building up. And then finally, we must take great care with our language. Now you can see by how I'm kind of moving from the past tense to the present tense, kind of where my view is on on prophecy, but I'll just say this, that we must take great care with our language because prophecy is neither infallible nor authoritative. We should refrain from saying phrases like God told me because that sounds an awful like thus saith the Lord, which can bind consciences and it can also limit accountability. Who wants to go up against somebody who said they have a word from the Lord, right? So I think we have to be careful in how we communicate them if and when we do. So, Where am I going with this? I I realize, first of all, that I've left a lot unanswered today. Okay, there are books and books and books written about this. But as I begin, let me end, as I began, let me end with something personal. I'll admit that for the majority of my adult Christian life, I have been a functional cessationist. Yeah, that was the first one I gave you, that I, that I believe that the, the gifts had ceased in the first century, mainly because I didn't want anything to do with them. Okay? For the past 10 or 15 years, I've called myself open but cautious. Okay, open, but I'm open to the, these gifts, but I'm cautious about them, especially gifts like prophecy or tongues or miracles, healings, those kind of things. Like the Thessalonians, I am tempted to despise prophecy because I'm wary of how the more, I would call them exotic spiritual gifts, are alluring to the spiritually immature. And when something is, is taken up by someone who's immature, a lot of times it's abused. And I've interacted with enough people who claim a prophetic gift, yet have a distinct aversion to authority, an aversion to sound doctrine or to accountable community. I've also never really experienced a church or ministry where charismatic gifts are practiced in a healthy manner. They are, they're easily abused, often counterfeited, and oftentimes they're connected with false doctrine. So it's really easy to go like, your doctrine's false, so everything about you is wrong. And that's just a fallacy. That's not the way to deal with that kind of thing. But rather than sift, rather than test and weigh and discern, it's often easier just to shut the spigot off and get rid of the craziness, right? But just because God's gifts are abused or neglected by sinful people doesn't mean that they can't or shouldn't be exercised in healthy ways. When God gives gifts to the church, he gives them in his wisdom to the church for the good of the church. Okay, now you may still be sitting there 
especially if you kind of find yourself in the cessationist camp going like, yeah, but, but how, how do we know these still apply today? And here's, here's what I would say. If we have a high regard for scripture as the sole and authoritative word of God, then the new or fresh revelation seems highly suspect. So somebody's saying, I have a word from the Lord, or, or God told me this, that seems suspect, because I want to go, look, we've got all the revelation we need right here. If you want to hear God speak to you, go and read his word. Read it out loud so you can hear him speaking to you. Right? However, what I've come to realize is that if we have a view of God's word, then we must take seriously passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, which command us not to despise prophecy. We have to take seriously 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 and 39, where Paul says, earnestly desire to prophesy. There is no text in the New Testament that says, oh yeah, forget those three verses. I'm rescinding those. Those are ended. It's dangerous, I think, then to just ignore those commands. And I think it can be unhealthy at the least for us to do so. So I will admit, and, I, and I, it's troubling, it's hard for me to say this. I will admit that I'm now what I would call a cautious continuationist. Now, I know that that may not sit well with some of you who are like, what? I can't believe this. I'm out of here. And I will admit, let me just say this, though. I will admit that even as a continuationist, I could very well be wrong. Okay? This is a doctrine that I hold like this. Um, I could very well be wrong. On the other hand, I'm also not prepared to stake my life or the future of this church or the unity of this church on this position. I think what the health of the church requires is, is for all of us to accept and use the gifts that God graciously gives us. However, whether or not you agree with me on this issue has no bearing on whether or not we can fellowship together and love each other. Amen. We may completely be on the opposite side of the spectrum on this one. I'm gonna say, you know what? Love trumps all that. So the biggest question for me as I preach a sermon like this is like, how in the world does this glorify Jesus? And in order to glorify Jesus in this church, we must elevate love for one another and the building up of the body over our stances and opinions on secondary or even third level tertiary doctrines like this one. Because that's the point of prophecy. That's, that's the point of any spiritual gift is to glorify Jesus by building up his church. So how are you glorifying Jesus with the gifts he's given you. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you again and we're grateful for the Son, the eternal Son who you have sent to us, Jesus Christ. We're grateful as we think of Holy Week, of him entering into Jerusalem, humble, mounted on a donkey, unrecognizable by the religious authorities, doing uh, miracles and healing people and teaching with authority and cleansing the temple, making people whole and eventually, Lord, being, being betrayed and denied and put on trial and beaten and scourged and hung on a cross. So as we think about Jesus and what he's done for us and who he's made us and how he's saved us and how he's loved us, Lord, uh, I, pr I pray, God, that, that you would make him everything to us. We would want to glorify him and exalt him and praise him and worship him and live for him and accept his gifts and use them in wisdom and maturity 
for love, for the sake of the body. So God, do in your body what you want to do in your body. Do in your church what you want to do in your church. Call us to get out of the way sometimes and use the gifts you've given us. Allow others to use their gifts, Lord, for our good and for your glory. And it's in your name that we pray all these things. And for that very purpose, for our good and your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.